Hello, Marvelites. You are listening to Marvel's Pull List for New Marvel Comics on sale November 24th, 2021. I am Ryan Panagos, aka Agent M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. This is the official Marvel podcast where we tell you all about the brand new comics on sale this week. We talk about stuff hitting Marvel Unlimited. We'll give you a rundown on the collections on sale. We're going to do a really fun reading club. Who are we talking to on our reading club today, Tucker? Today we're talking with Douglas Walk, who's the author of All of the Marvels, A Journey to the Ends of the Biggest Story Ever Told. Really, really fantastic book. Douglas read every Marvel comic (laughs) in preparation to write that book, which is what it's all about. It's really fascinating. So we're digging into all of that with him. And it was, you know, as you can imagine, a chat with someone who's read tens of thousands of Marvel comics Asking Douglas what he wanted to read for our reading club was a really interesting, especially interesting question. And he selected three issues, Fantastic Four, number 19, from the original run, Doctor Strange, number 53, and West Coast Avengers, number 22. So we're diving into all of that. You'll see, especially if you go head over to Marvel Unlimited, what connects those three books. And we're going to dig into that with Douglas. Yeah. Um, But this is also our episode released during Thanksgiving week here in these United States. Tucker, what is your favorite, if you celebrate, Thanksgiving meal item? Yeah, good question. I've been doing Thanksgiving more and more with my girlfriend's family, which is just like a lot of Dominican food, which, oh boy, some like day-long like roasted pork, like pernil and like oh. some uh, great rice dish and like so many good things. So that has become like my modern fave. What, what about you? For me, it's probably my wife's candied sweet potatoes. Oh, yeah. So much butter and so much <laughs> sugar in those sweet potatoes that my mom makes a great turkey and her homemade stuffing has sausage in it. Hell yeah. It's so good. Wow. Yeah. Very excited for that. And I was thinking, you know, we could have also done a great reading club episode just about Thanksgiving issues being when our episode releases, but shout out to Robin Belt on the Marvel.com editorial and Marvel Unlimited team. She gave me a link to a great Thanksgiving reading list that anyone can find on the app. It'll be up on uh, Marvel Unlimited. We'll make sure to put a link in the show notes and stuff, but it's got a bunch of great comics in it, but it's got one of my favorites of all time, Uncanny X-Men number 308, which is Johnny Romita Jr. crushing it in like 1992 or three or whatever that is. Just beautiful fashion. If nothing else, go look at that issue. See Bishop's beautiful mullet. See (laughs) just the big shoulders on some of the characters in that issue. It is gorgeous. (laughs) And then, of course, there's the uh, Vision and Scarlet Witch Thanksgiving issue is in there, which is number six, I think, from that limited series. I love that issue so much because Magneto comes to dinner. Man, oh, that's a feast in and of itself. It's so, so good. Awesome. So there's some great stuff in there. Definitely check that out if you're looking for some Thanksgiving reads to get you through this Turkey Day week. But also, if you need some books to read, we got some great ones for you. Lots of new comics out this week. Let's dive into it with our first pick of the week, which is Black Panther number one. Written by John Ridley, art by Juan Cabal, colors by Federico Belli, letters by VCs Joe Sabino, and a bevy of variant covers. <laughs> if you are a variant cover collector, this week is going to break you from three issues. There's three issues that will destroy you this week. One of them is Black Panther. One of them is Hulk. The other one is X-Force Killshot Anniversary Special, which we'll get to later. But there's so many variant covers, and there's some really great ones out there. So that said... Hell yeah, Black Panther. A new number one. John Ridley, he's an award-winning screenwriter, and he's written a bunch of comics for our distinguished competition. You've got John Ridley with this really cool story, a different take that, you know, is faithful to everything we know about Black Panther, but takes it in a totally different direction, which we desperately need after something as landmark as Ta-Nehisi Coates' run. And then you bring in Juan Cabal. The first image of this book is a really extreme close-up of T'Challa's vibranium suit and the mesh being little Black Panther face symbols is something I don't think I've ever thought about. It's just such a neat little thing and then it like pulls out to see Black Panther and he's with the Avengers and all the stuff's going on. We get into a lot of interpersonal stuff with T'Challa 
and his role as the chairperson and leader of the Avengers as the king of Wakanda, which now in the comics is also a parliamentary democracy and what that means and how he is someone who is kind of also leader of billions of people in space. And he's got all these different things and how he has to juggle that from a personal standpoint to a moral standpoint to a political standpoint. There's a lot of really cool stuff going on there. But then the meat of this involves brand new characters and secrets. And I don't want to dive into any of the spoilers here, but you get brought into this taut, tense thriller really quickly in this issue and how T'Challa is mixed up in some stuff. And there's a panel where, and something you don't see often, T'Challa is like sitting down, elbows on his knees, sort of like, like you can feel the breath coming out of him and he's dealing with something and you're like, whoa, this is something that's put T'Challa, one of the most capable superheroes in the Marvel Universe, on his heels it's incredible. And then you bring in, as I said, Juan Cabal, who has been doing incredible work. He's one of our Stormbreakers, which means he's just this incredibly talented artist. We were spotlighting in a lot of various ways. And getting a book like this lets him show off his talents. There's this page. He breaks down the action into so many panels. It starts with one wide vertical panel, then breaks down to two to eight, eight, four, four, one giant one, one small one. And this way, like almost an egg shape, the way it's structured on this page is magnificent. The action is brutal and fast, but the emotion and the brooding, I love to see T'Challa brooding in this issue. One of the most visually stunning books we have, even the last page, it's got Storm and the X-Men, T'Challa facing up against Captain America, and then Black Panther and someone else facing off against the Dora Milaje. That's what's coming in this book. I can't wait. Oh, man. My pick this week is Hawkeye, Kate Bishop, number one. It's written by Marika Nykamp with pencils by Anit Balam, inks by Oren Jr., colors by Brittany Peer, and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. I think right off the bat with this Kate Bishop story, it has that feeling. It has that high-octane sharpshooter-specific type action at the same time as really youthful, vibrant, fun voice. So mixing those two things, which inherently have that contrast, is so much fun. And I think that's really crucial to, for me, what makes a great Kate Bishop comic. Equally as crucial is Anid Balam's art, which is simultaneously like really detailed. We get a lot of stuff packed into some small panels here, a bunch of panels per page. But I really love the sense of scale that we have here and how much can be packed into those smaller panels at times. And then, of course, you come back to to the bigger splashes, the bigger panel structures as you go along. Then you also have just the great like Kate and friend stuff. You know, and you have Lucky to take care of in here. And there's just so much that I think comes with a Kate Bishop book. And I think it's done really, really wonderfully. It's at the end of the day, there's a lot going on, but it's a pretty simple story. And that's the mix you want. And we're pointed in a very specific and very intriguing direction. So a very auspicious start for a beloved title, a beloved character, big expectations this week, and and big delivery. I think that's pretty much the, the name of the game, especially when it comes to these three number ones, these three picks of the week. Yeah. And of course, shout out to everybody who's checking out Marvel Studios Hawkeye. The first two episodes are on Disney Plus this week, which uh, is going to get everybody talking about Kate Bishop. Perfect time to say Kate is great. All right. One more of our three picks of the week, and it is Hulk number one. This is a huge launch. It is written by Donny Cates with art by Ryan Otley, but they are just credited as by Donny Cates and Ryan Otley working very synergistically together on this issue. Beautiful colors by Frank Martin and letters by VCs Corey Pettit. I think this is the Marvel book that Ryan was born to draw. There is a part in this issue where Spider-Man shows up and I was like, man, Ryan draws the hell out of Spider-Man. It's so good. And he does. And he had some great Spider-Man stories, but his Hulk is so big and so intense. It reminds me in some ways of Adam Kubert. When Adam draws Hulk, that like big, scary, snarling, spittle flying everywhere, muscles exploding, 
things smashing. It just feels so right. If you had a chance, definitely read the free comic book day issue that has the Hulk story that is by Donnie and Ryan. You don't have to read it to enjoy this issue, but if you do and you read it, you're like, oh, cool. I see how it all ties together. That story sort of sets up where Banner is going in this issue. And Banner is a very important piece um, because there's a line in here that says, what if the Hulk exists to protect us from Banner? And you sort of get a different sense of the tone that this book is going for. It is not rehashing or, you know, reworking anything that Immortal Hulk got us. It's taking the Hulk and where he is now and Bruce Banner and and even talks about the immortalness of Hulk. And Bruce is like, got to move into a different place. There's something that he is really intent on. And by hook or by crook, he's going to make this move forward. And we see what that means for the Hulk. And I don't want to spoil anything, but at one point, Hulk in here fights like four or five Hulkbusters, like Iron Man Hulkbuster suits. And it is brutal. This is not a fluffy book. It's not a body horror book like Immortal Hulk, but it is a book in which there is damage being done. And that's what you know, you expect out of a Hulk book, some gnarly, gnarly action, big, massive scope to things. There's a double page spread I'm looking at with this humanoid metallic figure. Uh, with, I will not say much more about it, but it is even the Hulk, as big as he is, is just a tiny little speck in this big tapestry of this spread. And it's really cool where Hulk is going in this series is going to be a very different thing, and I'm super excited for it. Uh, actually going through and rereading this issue as I've been talking about it and like flipping through and see, reminding myself of the different panels and pages and the pacing and how quickly it gets from point A to point B and just jettisons us off into this story uh, made me like it even more. So much to love, so much to dive into in those three issues alone. But now we look towards all of the new Marvel mags heading your way this week. And to them, oh boy, Ryan, do I got a good one. Give me. We shall be handing out an award that I like to call, in honor of the holiday this week, the Hanks Giving McCoy, a.k.a. Feast Award. Hanks Giving McCoy, a.k.a. Feast Award, and I will be handing that out first to Amazing Spider-Man number 79, brought to us wonderfully by the Beyond Board. And this issue is written by Cody Ziegler, which uh, we talked to Cody on the show. Cody's been just doing killer, killer stuff. What I really like about this issue of ASM is that for maybe 80, 90% of this issue, it's a pretty thoughtful like deliberately paced story. There is great character work that goes into it. There's a lot happening with Ben Riley, of course, at the center of it all. And then we get to a turning point and this book goes insane. And I just really love more than anything the fact that we're reaching a turning point in this Beyond story where things are getting really weird. So my Thanksgiving, aka Feast Award, goes to the weirdness that is in this issue, which is so great and long may it last. Speaking of weird, let's talk about Death of Doctor Strange number three, because Jed McKay is a weird cat, and I really like that about him. It's hard to get much weirder in a like mainstream Marvel superhero book than a Doctor Strange title. And boy, does this deliver. We've got weird characters like the enemies, the three mothers who have just been these magical creatures who have been going and destroying and ravaging to feed their child, the peregrine child, which we finally get to see in this. It's real weird. We get a slice of Doctor Strange, like a almost a like a vertical slice, a piece of Doctor Strange from a certain time and place who has come to help solve his own murder and he has to be there for his own autopsy and like him going through all that stuff and what that means. It's, it's weird and it's a beautiful book. So to give my Thanksgiving feast award to a Dr. Strange in this title, a younger Dr. Strange who declines to make out with Clea, who in his own future would be his wife, but that's her past. And she's seeing a pure version of him from her past. And he's, he's not a scumbag. And I give him that award for not making the moves 
on someone he doesn't have that relationship with, even though Doctor Strange, he's down to clown, as the kids say. And normally you'd think Doctor Strange, he's not going to have those qualms. No, here, I will give it to Doctor Strange for being a good dude. (laughs) Yeah. For once in his friggin' life. (laughs) Moving on to someone who's bounced between being a good dude and a not good dude. It's (laughs) Iron Man number 14. This is actually a very introspective book. This is a book that points inwards, that asks questions about the title character himself. And this is an entire issue dedicated to those questions. It toes the line between what's real, what's not real, what's in Tony's head, what's not in Tony's head. It's very malleable. It's very flexible. It's very fluid between all of those things. And I think Cafu, right alongside Angel Unzueta, bring us the art in this issue and I think do a beautiful job of managing that. It's got to be a huge, huge, scary task for any artist of like, okay, we're not just dealing with real things here. We're dealing with things that can only exist in the mind that are actually not even necessarily happening, but we're presenting as like a physical manifestation of a question that's being asked. It's a really, really big thing that needs to be achieved here and it's it's beautifully, beautifully carried out. I love this art. So Shout out to everybody here. And just that pure premise, let alone the fact that they pulled it off beautifully, gets my Thanksgiving, aka Feast Award. Hell yeah. All right, we've got two Star Wars books for you this week. The first one is Star Wars The High Republic Trail of Shadows, number two. I love the look of this book, the tone of this book, the feel of this book. It's like a not quite procedural cop book or buddy cop book, but it's got elements of those. And it's kind of noirish in the Star Wars world. And it's a little gritty and it's dealing with some like vibes from this High Republic element in different ways from the main High Republic book. It gets gnarly and gritty. I will give my Thanksgiving Feast Award to a sequence in which the two main characters are pretending to be kind of police officers. They make up their own like titles and then they go in and they investigate this murder and it's a little funny in that Star Wars way. It has got its own tone and vibe, but it moves very quickly. It is really well paced in terms of its storytelling on the page. And it's just a simple part of what this overall story does, but I think it's indicative of what the tone and the flavor of the title brings to the Star Wars world. Oh yeah, more Star Wars, like you said, on the way in Star Wars Life Day number one. If you are a Star Wars fan, you'll be familiar with the concept of Life Day, which found its origins in uh, the Star Wars Holiday Special. But just in general, I will say that I just love the fact that this book exists. I think it's so much fun. So a huge applause goes out to everybody involved behind the scenes in making this happen. This book is comprised of three stories and a framing sequence. Obviously, there's a lot of Wookiee stuff in here, which is just the best. I love the fact that they're going for it. It's sort of even almost a bonus, the fact that the stuff within the book is great, but just the idea behind it on the most basic level, I love. And so to that, I give my Thanksgiving, aka Feast Award. All right, we've got to keep rolling on. We've got Symbiote Spider-Man Crossroads number five out this week. And it's the big wrap up to this limited series where Peter David is just having fun telling the story of Spider-Man during his time wearing the black suit. And he's getting on all kinds of adventures. It lets Peter write the Hulk. It lets Peter write Eternals and Asgardians and all kinds of stuff. And I think I will give my Thanksgiving, a.k.a. Feast Award to the two-page sequence wherein Hulk and Icarus reenact a classic moment from Hulk and Thor in the MCU, which includes looking at each other and then a punch and someone flying off the screen. It's funny. This book is just hilarious. I think it's a great cap to this recent string of symbiote Spider-Man books. Oh, yeah. Next up, we have Thor number 19. And that is obviously Donny Cates with artist Nick Klein in this issue I hope that we've just been doing a good enough job at talking about how incredible Nick Klein is on this series. His work has been stellar, brilliant stuff. Obviously, Donnie is a storyteller that loves huge spectacle. He loves big storytelling. He loves the grand scale. And that obviously like, it provides an amazing platform for the people that he works with. And Nick has to come aboard and knock it out of the park. And he's been doing it every single issue what a talent, my Thanksgiving McCoy, a.k.a. Feast Award to Mr. Nick Klein. 
Yeah. We're going to wrap things up with three mutant issues, with Wolverine number eight being first. This issue has Wolverine jumping out of windows and jumping off buildings and cutting off a person's fingers and screaming and yelling and doing all kinds of stuff. And we've got all kinds of chaos and, and horror. But Benjamin Percy, love that man, writes a story in which Wolverine gets to sit on a beach, clink beers with his friend, and enjoy life for at least for a little bit. And to that... I give my Thanksgiving, <laughs> a.k.a. Feast Award. We get a little bit of, of joy and a little bit of Johnny Cash, and that's all I can ask for. Great stuff. Next up, we have X-Force Killshot Anniversary Special number one. That is celebrating 30 years of X-Force. What better way to celebrate 30 years of this team that we love so much and this title that we love so much? Then with an issue brought to us by Mr. Rob Liefeld, who's credited on the story, the pencils and the inks on this one. Chad Bowers brings us the script. You could tell how much energy and just verve, action, excitement was put into this issue because it doesn't hold back from page number one. This is what you want from this book. Everything that you could ask for from a 30th anniversary X-Force special brought to us by Rob Liefeld is in this issue, and it's so great. So here's to three decades of X-Force. I give that my Thanksgiving McCoy, a.k.a. Feast Award. One more book to talk about this week. It is X-Men number five, and it's a big Polaris spotlight issue. I got to give a huge shout out to Jamie McKelvey's variant cover where he draws a rogue and Wolverine and rogue is throwing Laura fastball special style and just the look of joy on Wolverine's face being thrown as a weapon. That's what I want. But in this issue, we get the X-Men team versus a new version of the Reavers and it's a really wild fight. It is Polaris using someone in a way that is upsetting to them, but at the same time makes perfect, perfect sense. And then you get the highs of this big battle and then the lows of Cyclops having a conversation with someone. And I don't mean lows in a bad way. I mean, lows for him. Like you can almost feel a character's stomach like sink down as they're having a conversation. My Thanksgiving, AKA feast award goes to just Polaris. I think Jerry writes a great Polaris, uh, sympathetic Polaris in terms of like, Someone who feels like an outsider or feels weird or feels off at times and has to work through their own feelings amidst having a major job to do. And she rules. All right. That wraps it up for Fresh Floppies coming your way this week. But head over to Marvel Unlimited and the Marvel Unlimited app to read the wonderful Infinity Comics. We have Fantastic Four, number three, Spine Tingling Spidey, number three, Ghost Rider, number eight, which is the series finale. That's really cool. And then, of course, everybody's favorite, it's Jeff, number 12. Hey, look, just make sure you open your MU app this week. Yeah. A couple times yeah. throughout the week. Have fun with it, okay? Yeah. It's comics. Speaking of great comics and MU, lots of books hitting the service this week. The first issue of the Kang the Conqueror series, which we've been really digging. You can check that out. Final issue of Way of X, so you can read that whole series. First issue of X-Men Trial of Magneto, some Marauders in there, Guardians of the Galaxy 17. There's a lot of good stuff in MU this week. Definitely go and check it out. And if you are not subscribed, go to marvel.com slash unlimited and get your butt into it. Wrapping things up this week with the collections section, a bunch dropping this week. My eyes, though, are going straight to Reign of X, Volume 6, X-Corp by Teeny Howard. That's Volume 1. So good. Uh, and then X-Men Legends, Volume 1, The Missing Links. That's really, really fun. I think that's going to be a great thing to have in trade paperback for longtime X-Men fans looking at some issues that tell stories of Classic X-Men story arcs, classic mutant stories of the past, filling in little moments, details that we never learned about before. So that'll be a really nice one to have in your very hands. Hell yeah. All right. Speaking of cool things to have in your hands, get yourself a copy of Douglas Wolk's book, All of the Marvels, so you can check out all the stuff that we talk about and then read the three issues we read on Marvel Unlimited. What were those books, Tucker? 
They're Fantastic Four number 19, Doctor Strange number 53, and West Coast Avengers number 22. And you're going to find out why we talked about those very shortly. Let's take a listen. All right, Tucker, I hope you have read all 27,000 <laughs> comics we're about to talk about with our guest this week, Douglas <laughs> Wolk. Douglas, how you doing? I'm uh, hanging in there like a kitten on a 70s motivational poster. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Uh, Douglas, thank you so much for joining us today. Obviously, we have a huge canvas to talk about. We've narrowed it down to a few comics with, I think, some very interesting threads that tie them together. However, before we get to that, where I always like to start is hearing about your comics origin story in general. Were you growing up going to your local comic shop? Where did that all start for you? It all started when I was probably uh, nine years old in upstate New York, visiting my grandparents, go to the store. You know, I bought, I think, an issue of Green Lantern, Green Arrow. And then I was, oh, this is continued. There's another part. I have to go back next month and get the next one. Oh, this character is another comic. Oh, this other one looks interesting too. Oh, there's a store down the street that has nothing but comics. I should start going there. And by the time I was about 13 years old, they were like, you know what, Douglas, we're just going to teach you to use the register. <laughs> so I ended up working there for a really long time. And then I just never stopped. I think the first Marvel thing I read would have been when I was also nine years old or so. Uh, the kid across the street from me collected Daredevil. And this was actually before Frank Miller started writing it, when he was just drawing it and Roger McKenzie was writing it. And, you know, he would borrow my Batmans and I would borrow his Daredevils. And before I knew it, I was hooked. I mean, that's a, that's a good introduction, especially to, to storytelling and art. One of the reasons we want to talk to you for the show, it's kind of a, a perfect melding of everything that's going on right now. You have a brand new book called All of the Marvels, and uh, you did the interesting task, an almost <laughs> insurmountable task of reading how many Marvel comics? A little over 27,000. <laughs> All of the in-universe Marvel superhero comics published from 1961 to, uh, well, I said 2017, but I actually kind of kept reading beyond that. <laughs> What spurred this on? Uh, insanity. <laughs> it was actually inspired by my son. When my kid was about 10 years old, he had never been interested in superhero comics. You know, that's what my dad likes. And then uh, he realized, oh, this is a complicated system. I like complicated systems. Hey, dad, I would like to read all of the Marvel superhero comics. It's like, well, okay, this will last a week. It'll be a fun week we have together. And then three months later, he'd read like 400 issues. And I started thinking, what would it actually be like to read the whole 60-year story as one story, to read half a million plus pages? Because it all does fit together. And I wanted to see what that would look like. And then I spent the next five years doing that. <laughs> <laughs> did you follow the chronological release order of things? I did not. I did not follow any order at all. I grazed awesome. Whatever I felt like reading on any given day, that's what I read. And I had a spreadsheet, and I just crossed stuff off as I got through it. But it made it much, much more fun to be able to jump around. I mean, I figure if you are reading, as somebody who is not stuck inside the story, you have access to a time machine, and you have access to a universe hopping machine. You know, why not use them? I mean, this is a, a crazy task spoken from... Ryan Agent Empanagos' mouth himself, <laughs> someone who's read, every, you know, from just the the weekly releases, has been reading every Marvel comic for. I think I've read about twenty thousand because I was re I've been reading since I was six years old. But you know, I don't remember, and I didn't do them in such a condensed form. Sorry, Tucker, didn't mean to. <laughs> no, no, no. Please, that's exactly what I did here. Did it ever become a chore? Were you loving it the whole way through? Were there highs and lows to it? Oh, there were highs and lows for sure. But you know, after I got to a certain point. I could find something I enjoyed in just about any comic. What were some of the books that surprised you? Either from you were like, oh, this, I didn't realize I had missed this, or, oh, wow, I thought I was going to enjoy this more and I didn't, or whatever it might be. There were a lot of surprises, and some of them were really pleasant surprises. There's a Man-Thing series from 1998 that's never been reprinted. It's not even on Unlimited. It's so good. It's J.M. DeMattis and Liam Sharp absolutely kicking it out of the park. 
Ooh. Yeah, it's fantastic. There was, you know, the living mummy stuff from supernatural thrillers is not all good, but some of it's really interesting. And then there were things like going back and actually reading all of the 1974 Master of Kung Fu series straight through. That is one spectacularly interesting and beautiful and crazily problematic and really smart comic. Yeah, some of the Paul Glacey art, like sort of in the middle there, is real cool. Glacey stuff is beautiful. The Gene Day stuff near the end of the run is absolutely exquisite, like just gorgeous. And it really reads as one gigantic story like Master of Kung Fu does. Like Doug Mensch was writing it for close to 10 years and just builds and builds and builds the story. That was interesting. Reading the uh, Mark Grinwald run on Captain America, it was fascinating just all the stuff that he was playing with that nobody had ever really tried before. So many fun, fun moments. At what point in the project did you start to really feel like you had a grasp on what this crazy, wild, enormous, multifaceted endeavor that is Marvel Comics and the history of Marvel Comics really was, where you were like, okay, these are the commonalities of the things that I'm reading. Or was it just like, this is truly all over the place and there's not really words to quantify it and silo things in such a manner? That's a super good question. There was not one gigantic aha moment. There were lots of little aha moments, like realizing just how important the stories of teenage girls and young professional women were to the beginning of the Marvel story. All of those comics that were around that time, you know, your Linda Carter student nurse and Patsy and Heedy and Millie the Model and Kathy the Teenage Tornado and love romances and teenage romance and this whole section of the comics that got absorbed into the other comics. And the characters never went away completely. They stuck around in the background for a long time, but they were always kind of there. Also, the idea of monsters just kept coming up. And from the obvious, you know, I am Groot types at the beginning to the idea of what is monstrous? What does it mean to be a monster? What does it mean to protect your family from monsters? That was something that kind of came together over a while. And then there were lots of people writing stories more or less independently of each other. But there's a moment around 1986 or 1987 where everything in the Marvel story suddenly goes underground. Everything is happening beneath the Earth's surface or at the bottom of the sea or in tunnels underneath the city. And there's all of this underground energy that eventually like bursts upward during Inferno. That can't have been coordinated. There's an extent to which, like, there's a few people working together on the story, but then there's just people working in completely different branches of the Marvel story who are all thinking the same way. And when you see something like that happening, you have to think what is going on in the culture at that point that these stories are coming out this way. It's real interesting. I've never thought about that that way, but as soon as you said it, I started thinking about the time period and the stories, and that's so cool. Ah, man, I'm very excited. I, I have a copy of the book here. So many people internally at Marvel love the book. Like there, so there's been a bunch of people who have been like recommending it. And there's a lot of love for your love for the material in here, which is wonderful. You mentioned that your son had read like 400 books. What was his experience as you were going through this, this long dive? He kind of went his own way. As a family, we still read an issue together every night. So I have a podcast about Dr. Doom, Voice of Latveria, and... As a family, we've been reading all of Doom's appearances in order. Not publication order, not even continuity order, the order they happen to Doom. The difference between continuity order and the order they happen to Doom is Doom has a time machine. Yeah. At the moment, <laughs> uh, we're right in the middle of Mark Miller's Fantastic Four. That is an interesting way to look at this. But as well, you mentioned those strange commonalities that you found across books from the mid-late 80s. Is understanding or looking into the cultural context of the time of whatever given book you decide to pick up, is that interesting to you? Is that something that you like to think about before you open up an issue? Is that something that you're thinking about when you're reading? Yes, yeah, absolutely a thing I'm thinking about. And it's absolutely a thing that reading these comics has made me curious about. You know, the first Hulk story is not just an 
atomic fear story. It's not just a bomb story. It is a, the atomic bomb testing moratorium has just been lifted two or three months before Kirby and Lee are doing this story. That's real interesting. Seeing the way that attitudes towards the war in Vietnam change from, you know, Flash Thompson's going into the army to Flash Thompson is coming back from the army to Patsy Walker's boyfriend Buzz is back from Vietnam and something awful happened to him there and he can't even talk to Patsy. This is the thing that happened in Patsy Walker, Patsy and Heedy. To, you know, a few years later, there are student protesters outside the Stark Industries plant. And seeing the way that that changes, like the way that this public story is thinking about what's in the newspapers, that's super interesting. Wow. Yeah. When you're going back through these books and you get to, say, those early Daredevil issues that were your first you know, starting point with Marvel, how does that feel? It's been really interesting to revisit stuff. A lot of issues seem to have changed somehow while I wasn't looking at them. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff going on that I wasn't noticing at the time. I think the only thing that I read decades and decades ago that I came back to and I was like, yep, this is exactly like I remember it was some like Iron Man story from 1982 that for some reason just like burned itself into my memory. It was like a Bob Layton, David Michelinie three-part Daredevil story. It was like, why do I remember this story word for word? <laughs> what was happening to me when I read it the first time? How can I recapture that? <laughs> Over the course of these enormous amount of books you've read, favorite runs, favorite writers, favorite artists, favorite characters. Oh, man. Favorite issues, all of that. So I'm still picking up all of the X-Men books every single week. I got Inferno number two this morning. I am absolutely loving where that is going. That's wonderful. I am deeply, deeply fond of the Jim Starlin Warlock stuff from the 70s, which blew my mind when I was 10 or 11 years old, blew my mind all over again when I reread it when I was 30, blew my mind all over again when I reread it for this. Different way every time. Starlin had something really, really special going on then and just not like anything else I've seen. I absolutely loved the unbeatable Squirrel Girl, front to back. I treasure that comic. I treasure everything about it. There are so many favorites. Going back and getting to just inhale all of the 1975 to 1991 Chris Claremont X-Men New Mutants Excalibur thing, that was breathtaking. There's a lot of stuff. I love it. <laughs> Comics, man, they're pretty good. <laughs> the three issues that we've landed on here today for listeners, we're talking about Fantastic Four, number 19, from the original run. We have Doctor Strange, number 53, and then West Coast Avengers, number 22. These are three different comics from sort of three different time periods, at least, if not eras. Out of all of the comics you've read, obviously, we could have talked about most of them today, but we've landed here on three seemingly disparate ones. What made you choose these, Douglas? Reasons that will be apparent once you read them. <laughs> I don't want to spoil the surprise for people who haven't seen them before, but I, I love this particular combination of three comics. Yeah, well, we always urge our listeners to read the books ahead of time because we do get into spoilers. We do want to be able to, to talk about them in fun ways. And I had, of course, read Fantastic Four 19. I mean, I've read Lily Kirby run, I think, twice through over the years. So I read that, but I had never read or really even knew about the Doctor Strange and the West Coast Avengers issues because those weren't books that I had ever gotten into in any major way. I was like, I read through FF and it's great. And then Doctor Strange is, I'm like, huh, that's cute. That's fun. Like just from looking at the cover, get through it. And I'm like, I know what's going to happen here, but I don't know how. <laughs> and then we get into the West Coast Avengers of it all. So these are interconnected stories. Have you done any research on the hows and whys of this? Because the original, of course, done by Stanley and Jack Kirby, but then Roger Stern comes in, what is that, 15 years later, give or take? And then Steve Englehart and crew come in again another like eight, nine years after that to sort of follow up on all these? Yeah, it's fascinating. So to give the game away, in Fantastic Four number 19, Prisoners of the Pharaoh, the Fantastic Four find themselves in the Pyramid of Ramatut, time traveler, 
And then in Doctor Strange number 53 from 1983, Doctor Strange's astral form is traveling back in time, and he ends up in the Sphinx at exactly the same time as the Fantastic Four are there. And they can't see him, but he can see them, and he actually fixes a couple plot problems with the original <laughs> Fantastic Four story. <laughs> and then five years after that, the West Coast Avengers are stuck in a constant, like, traveling back in time thing. They've been scattered across time. And a bunch of the West Coast Avengers end up in the Sphinx again with Ramatat and the Fantastic Four and Doctor Strange at the same time. There's actually another later story in The Rise of Apocalypse, which was published in the mid-90s. Some of number three and four are taking place kind of backstage behind uh, Ramatat's throne at the same time. And you can hear the, the conversation going on on the other side of the wall. The fascinating thing about this is that in the Doctor Strange issue in particular, there is no footnote that says, you know, see Fantastic Four number 19. Because that story had not been reprinted in years at that point. The last time that it had been reprinted was, in fact, in the issue that Mark Wade has called the best Avengers story ever, Giant Size Avengers number two, which is another time travel story that's got, you know, Kang and Ramatut and stuff in it. So it had been reprinted there as a backup. But as far as most of Doctor Strange's readers were concerned, in the middle of 1983, the Fantastic Four just happened to be in ancient Egypt for, you know, some reason. They were there. <laughs> Fine. Go with it. Why not? And then people who had seen that story before would go, oh, I see what's going on there. I love that. <laughs> Aside from, like, the plot elements that obviously have connections, do you have, like, broader thoughts on the runs that these three occur in? Whether it's, you know, obviously the legendary FF run or Stranger West Coast Avengers? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Doctor Strange in particular, there's a six-issue run that's uh, written by Roger Stern and drawn by Marshall Rogers. And Marshall Rogers was amazing. Absolutely outstanding artist. Did relatively few comics in his life. But he did this six-issue run, and it's gorgeous. It looks amazing for 1983. There's this whole thing going on in it with color holds, with things that were drawn in black line but printed in particular colors, like Doctor Strange's astral form appears as just blue, no black lines at all. It's this gorgeous, gorgeous effect, especially for comics of the time. And you know, he's so good at blocking, he's so good at facial expressions, and everything is so eccentric and so distinctive about the way that he draws. And Roger Stern, like, there's a lot of plot going on in that story. There's a love story, there's a backwards time travel thing, there's the intersection with the Fantastic Four story that works whether you know the original story or not, and also adjust some stuff going on in that story. If you know the original one, it's just incredible juggling act. And the Steve Englehart uh, West Coast Avengers, like it is so much fun. And it's, again, such a complicated story. There's six or seven different plots going on at once, all kind of cross-talking to each other. And again, it, he's the puppet master. He's coordinating it all. And then there's the Lee and Kirby Fantastic Four, which is... It's the bedrock of everything. It is the pillar that everything beyond it is built on. You know, talking about Marshall Rogers, I always think of him for whatever reason as a Batman artist, you know, first and foremost. So I, when I saw his name, I was like, ah, great. It was exciting to see him at this time period. And then when you were talking about the, the coloring, we had Ralph Macchio on the show and we were talking about what if stuff and we had a, a Butch Geis issue. And I believe it was a Butch Geist drawn What If about Doctor Strange. And they do the same, just some really beautiful color work in there that is just stunning. And it's something that you can't replicate the same way with the digital coloring that they do, or at least we don't really have that effect these days. And it's so cool to see. I was really delighted by just the, the visual explosion of that issue. It was really neat. I love that Doctor Strange cover so much. It's really beautiful stuff. Is this a unique case? I mean, something that intertwines, in, especially in how it doesn't specifically call out that Fantastic Four issue, and the fact that this happens three times over, that there's this connection between three issues here. Is this something that you would see pop up every now and then, or is this actually a rarer case? Uh, you do see it pop up every so often. There are a few other examples I can think of. There's a moment in Avengers number 16, 
the one where the kooky quartet version of the team comes together, you know, Captain America, Hawkeye, Quicksilver, Scarlet Witch. That moment gets revisited a bunch in different ways. There's a, a Thunderbolt story that deals with it. There was that Avengers 1.1 to 1.5 that Mark Wade and Barry Kitson did a couple of years ago that goes back to it. The other one that comes to mind that's really a lot of fun is that there's a fill-in issue during the middle of Walt Simonson's Thor run that was by Jim Owsley and I think John Buscema. And 15 years later, Owsley, who was then Christopher Priest, and the artist he was working with then, whose name is slipping my memory, did a two-part story in Black Panther that happens during that Thor story. And again, is not I don't think it's actually even footnoted as like, that's what's going on, but that's what's going on. <laughs> we talked about some of the, the timely stuff and sort of grounding it in, in reality, and it's part of what makes Marvel Marvel. But I was thinking also, you know, I think I know you through my wife, who probably knows you through the music side of your career and your interests and your love and everything. You have a, a long, great career in music journalism, music writing, music editing, and, and, and all kinds of fun stuff. When I go through and read a lot of old comics, I pick up a lot of the pop culture references in particular. As a, you know, someone who is so deeply interested in music side of things too, were there any interesting things that you caught up on or like picked up on as you were going through? Because they, you know, you see the, of course, the Beatles showing up in Fantastic Four or mentions of of larger acts. But sometimes, you know, there'll be like some subtle, weird things that get thrown into a lot of issues, especially in the, I think in the 80s, it felt like there was a lot of stuff happening. I will say in the 80s and 90s, there were a ton of Hypno Love Wheel references. Hypno Love Wheel being a New Jersey-based band whose bass player, I believe, Dan Cuddy, was an assistant editor at Marvel. So, you know, you'll have Flash Thompson saying, like, I had to stand in line for 12 hours to get these Hypno Love Wheel tickets. But, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. but th there is actually a uh, hidden pop culture reference in this Fantastic Four issue, in Fantastic Four 19, because uh, it's Prisoners of the Pharaoh, and it's coming out in... October 1964. And you know what the biggest thing in movie theaters right then was? Cleopatra. Oh. The Cleopatra movie with Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. It was on the cover of Life magazine the week it came out. It was also on the cover of Life magazine a year before it came out. It was going to be the biggest movie of that year and everybody knew it. Yeah, there's a panel in particular when I was rereading it, I was like, oh, this just, this feels like they're riffing on Cleopatra. I love that. And it is in fact that panel that Roger Stern and Marshall Rogers seize on as the tie to their story in Doctor Strange. Because there's the character whose soul is being reincarnated in various forms. And she is the slave girl who's in the background of that panel. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and she gets pulled out of there. Can we talk about the little plot fix that goes on between those Please. two? Please, yeah. So, in a lot of early Fantastic Four issues, the thing turns back into Ben Grimm for some reason or other. <laughs> Who knows why? <laughs> yeah, this one was like, oh, you, you got too hot in the sun. So. <laughs> you got too hot in the sun, so you turned back into Ben Grimm and you could slip out of the chains that you were in. <laughs> Which, like, it's great, and it also doesn't really make sense. And so in the Doctor Strange issue... You've got Doctor Strange going around in his astral form, and he sees that the thing is a captive, and he's like, well, we got to get this guy free. And he works some magic stuff to kind of make the sun's rays make a temporary change and turn him back into Ben. I'm like, okay, nicely done. That makes story sense. That's fine. That makes a little more story sense. <laughs> Speaking of that, like the certain meta aspects of reading these issues, obviously the fact that you were jumping around makes this a different experience, but are you conscious of the growth of writers and artists or their own arcs in particular? Like, oh, this is interesting read because this is early Jim Starlin. You know what I mean? He's just, I can see, I know where he's going to go, but I'm just seeing the adolescent version of that here. And then you read something, you know, whatever, however, long later in, in your experiment and you go, okay, here he is now. I fully realized and kind of 
connecting those dots between writers and artists and whoever might be involved in the issues. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, one of Jim Sterling's, I think the first thing he drew for Marvel was not even a superhero story. It was a romance comic. And it's a romance story, but you can look at his layouts and go like, oh, he's using the same sort of like three slivery triptychs of the same character's you know, face and expression. Like, that's a thing you're going to see in Captain Marvel later on. That's a thing you're going to see in uh, you know, Infinity Gauntlet later on. And he's kind of working it out here. Steve Englehart, before he wrote this West Coast Avengers story, actually, his first thing was uh, in, I think, Our Love Story, too. Uh, he was writing under the pen name Ann Spencer. Again, you can see the way he uses language and the way that he manages to, like, turn exposition into something that gets across something about that character so it doesn't feel like exposition. Like, that is a fantastic trick that Englehart does a lot. And he's doing it from the get-go. You know, it's interesting having this conversation in a historical context or in a context that feels like archaeology. But to go to some of the more recent issues and the stuff that I think for certain readers that that is, you know, more connected to maybe ongoing things or, or at least maybe certain creators are still working and things like that. So I asked you about favorites at large before, but in the last maybe say 10 years, are there runs that that stood out to you that can really stand up to the 27,000 plus issues that you've read and go, this one is actually, in your opinion, really exceptional? I think actually the last 10 years have been mostly kind of a golden period. Mm. Like the giant Hickman Avengers, New Avengers, Infinity, Secret Wars thing is absolutely extraordinary. I've got a whole chapter in the book about Dark Reign, which is just fantastically interesting. The Matt Fraction and David Aha Hawkeye run is, is absolutely amazing. Squirrel Girl, I've talked about. Immortal Hulk, like so many of the Al Ewing comics are like... There's the whole practically Ewing verse that he's put together. The uh, Kieran Gillen, Jamie McKelvey, Young Avengers is outstanding. I'm, I'm rattling on and on, but that's because there's so much stuff that I've just been enjoying so much. Okay, you know what's a totally below-the-radar series that I thought was enormously fun? Mm. The 2016 Contest of Champions series. It is a comic based on a mobile game based on a comic, <laughs> and it is an absolute delight. I mean, it's Al Ewing and Paco Medina, I think. Yeah. Um, and it's just Al being like, oh, I can play with almost anything and like alternate realities and worlds. And you give me the maestro and I, you give me a the British Punisher. Yes, let's <laughs> yeah. do it. And the core of the story is the British Punisher outlaw character who had not appeared anywhere in 20 years <laughs> coming to embrace nonviolence. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally. That, 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 that's a great deep poll. I think people are going to look back and be like, all right, what did Al write before I was reading everything that Al wrote, which is cool. You mentioned Dark Rain and some of the other events. What is it like when you're going through this and doing all your reading and like hitting big pockets of like, this is a giant story that encompasses all the Marvel stuff? Do you dive into the bigger overall story? Do you sort of just say, okay, I'll dip in and see a little bit of Infinity Wars here, but then I don't need the doppelgangers for the next two weeks, you know, invading every one of my books. Where, where do you go <laughs> playing around with some of those? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't reading everything chronologically. Sometimes when I hit a big crossover story like that, I would read it as a story. Sometimes, you know, if I was reading a bunch of web Spider-Mans already and I hit, you know, the Infinity War or whatever, I just, okay, I will see how these stand without Infinity War right next to them. And usually it was fine. There are a few places like Operation Galactic Storm where you actually have to read all 19 parts in order or whatever. But mostly, you know, they're on the hub and spoke model where there's the central story and then there's the stories that kind of relate to it and kind of don't, that you can pick and choose which ones you want to read. And sometimes I would get to those all together and sometimes separately, and it was fun. Just put it all together in my head. There are a few events that have been really, really carefully choreographed and like the timing for everything just absolutely perfectly lines up. I think actually the Hellfire Gala actually worked out like the timing of everything that happens there and it all pretty much all fits together. And then there are things like Avengers versus X-Men where, you know, maybe some parts are not entirely compatible with some of the others, but 
fine, you know, you give yourself the mental no prize for figuring out like, well, what about if like, maybe you can make it work inside your head? I think that was a great point. It emphasizes something that we stress here on the show is that you don't have to read all the books if you don't want to. Tie-ins are, are there, but if you do, they give you a little bit more. So you've just validated some of our discussions because we talk about every single book coming out every single week here, and we know everybody can't afford every single book. So if you don't buy and check out every book in a tie-in, it's okay. Absolutely. When you're writing this book, Douglas, obviously you learned a ton through the experience of reading these things and journeying through the Marvel Universe. Can you say what else you learned from the process? Huh. A lot of what I learned was about writing and about communicating. I basically wrote this book twice. I wrote it once and it did not work. It just was not communicating. It was me talking to the inside of my head. And I ended up scrapping about 90% of it and just starting over and thinking about how it could mean something to its readers, how it could be something that could give pleasure to people who read it, even if they didn't care about the thing I was writing at all. And that really opened it up. And then talking to friends, getting other people's perspective, talking to people like I know who are hardcore fanatical X-Men fans and saying like, okay, what am I missing about X-Men? What is the thing that makes this so much a part of you that you actually identify personally very strongly with one of these characters? And that split my brain open in a great way. That was just learning about completely different ways of thinking about these stories and how people can find meaning in them for themselves. Mm, that's really nice. Thinking along the lines of just the book, do you have a favorite section of the Marvel canon that you were finally like pouring yourself out in this second go around? Was there a part of the book that you were like, I want to dive into this even further? The most fun for me chapter to write of the book, I ended up cutting because it just didn't it, it didn't work with the whole thing. <laughs> I made it like an extra little bonus for people who pre-ordered it from my favorite comic book store. That is a fake history of the first 20 years of Marvel based on the idea that it's artistic and aesthetic and financial breakthrough was not Fantastic Four number one, but Linda Carter student nurse number one. And just what the next 15, 20 years of Marvel would look like if that had been the case. <laughs> that you know, that's that's not a chapter for a general interest book, but it was a. It's like okay, that was that was fun. I had a lot of fun writing about that giant Jonathan Hickman Avengers to Secret Wars story, and just seeing the ways that it talked to all the earlier parts of the story, the things that drew on the themes that it drew on that had been running through the entire thing, sometimes more visibly than others. And also some of the visual things it uses. There's an image near the end of Secret Wars, the 2015 Secret Wars, which is an echo of an image from an Avengers story from 1974, and also an echo of an image from the end of Secret Wars 2 back in the 80s. And you look at anyone on its own, it makes sense, but you look at those three images together and you go, oh... Like that's right there. Even the image of the Earth's crashing together that appears throughout that Hickman story, like that is a story that had appeared in Marvel Comics decades before Jonathan Hickman wrote them. And the very first time it appears is in Steve Ditko's last Doctor Strange story. And it's there. Like you look at those two images and it may have been a conscious thing. It may have been something that he just kind of picked up and had in his head. I have no idea. But it's there. And there's that echo. And that was just so much fun to observe and write about. I love that. Before we let you go, uh, you had mentioned a comic book shop, your favorite comic book shop. Please give them a shout out. Let, let, we always love plugging comic book shops. Books with Pictures in Portland, Oregon. It is the comic store I've wanted there to exist all my life. Awesome. Well, I think there's a ton of really fascinating things that we've spoken at 
today for listeners to go out and revisit or visit for the first time. Douglas, we could keep talking with you. This could be like a a limited series, a 12-hour special all in itself. But thank you so much for joining. This has been really, really, truly fantastic. And such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks, Douglas. Good talking to you. Thank you once more to Douglas Wolk for that wonderful discussion. One of my favorite ones in a while. Really, really fascinating to get his perspective on things, not just because he's done all of that damn reading, but because he has a fascinating perspective on it all. So thanks again to Douglas. And the book is really great. Everybody should check it out. If you have someone in your life who is like, I want to start dabbling into comics with a little help. This might be a really great way to dip your toes in. Uh, but also if you're someone who loves Marvel comics and maybe wants to read a little bit more, it's going to be a great read for you as well. That is it for us this week. This episode of Marvel's Pulis was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marcus, Jasmine Estrada with help from Megan Pagala. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And Brad Barton is Marvel's Pulis audio development manager. And I asked Brad what his favorite Thanksgiving food is. And he said it's creamed herring and lemons, which is a, a staple in the Barton household. Look, he's a weird dude. He likes weird foods. No judges here. Weird dude, weird food. I'm Ryan. And I'm Tucker. This is Marvel. Your universe. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. (laughs) 